everyone, and uh, welcome along this morning. It's great to uh, be here together. And as we uh, as we dig into this part of uh, God's Word, <clears throat> uh, I wonder a question that we can have is: How do we stay enthusiastic? How do we keep our faith fresh uh, when we've been at it for a long time? Uh, I don't know if you've ever taken up a new hobby at any point in your life, whether there's been something that has gotten you excited, uh, you've started to participate in it, you've perhaps spent a lot of money or a lot of time doing it, uh, but then just as quickly you've lost interest and then you have this pile of equipment that instead uh, starts to gather dust in the corner uh, of your house. It could be uh, perhaps a craft that you've participated in. It could be learning a new language. You might have decided uh, that you're finally going to read some classic novels or taken up a new sport, a new hobby, uh, anything like that. It's very easy to catch passion, to get excited about something new, but it's very hard to stay that way. Uh, and our faith can be exactly the same. And excitement in our faith can work exactly the same way. Uh, some people will spend their whole Christian life chasing after that enthusiasm, chasing after the experience, the camp, the conference, whatever it may be that gives them uh, that buzz, that feeling uh, of, of passion, of excitement. Uh, but for others of us, uh, it just slips into routine. And so following Jesus stops being exciting. It just becomes a weekly habit. It blends into our everyday routine of life. And then being a Christian can start to just become, well, what's the, what's the minimum set of rules that I have to follow in order to be respectable uh, to the people around me? But how do we stay fresh in our faith? How do we stay enthusiastic in our faith? Not for the sake of being excited, uh, but so that we might be God's people, that we might be what he has made us to be instead of what can sometimes feel like a shadow of the church that the Bible describes. That's what Peter's talking about here. That's what Peter gets excited about through his letter. And the other thing that we see as we go is that it won't be easy. It won't just happen. Uh, it needs us to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into being God's people. Otherwise, it will never work. Uh, and so we might like to keep God's word open as we dig into it this morning to uh, that part of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Now, as we dive in this morning, and we've said this a few times already in the course of working through this book, if you had just dropped into 1 Peter at this point in time with no context whatsoever, you could easily think that the book is all about what you need to do in order to be a Christian. And I know I've already spoken to a number of people here at, uh, at our church, and that's been the impression that many people have had over the last few weeks. It's felt at times as though God was uh, like this overbearing team leader or a CEO who's really trying to drill into his employees the importance of maintaining top performances and we face his disappointment, should we not? Uh, and that, that idea, that picture of God as a hard taskmaster has rightly made a few people uncomfortable. That's not been the intent uh, of what we've been trying to say. And indeed, we know that that's not how God works. Uh, now, Peter will tell us the pattern of life that we are to follow. That's highly significant. But what's important is that we orient that week by week to the way that the letter began, to the bigger picture 
of what Peter is saying. And what Peter is doing here is putting together a number of building blocks. He will show us how to live as Christians. And that's what he's doing now. But it's important that we understand what God has done to make that possible and what gives being a Christian a meaning. Now, there's three main ideas in the book. There are two big ideas which we're going to look at today, but both of those build on the one foundation. First of all, in order to know how to live as a Christian, we need to know what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in Christ. Uh, So to look back, way back to the first chapter in the first few verses, uh, we read uh, of the new life that we have in Christ in verse 3. There Peter wrote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. There it is, what God has done. And he built on that uh, in chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now there are two threads running through that big idea, that big picture. First of all, the gift that God gives us of a new life, of a new identity in Christ. And secondly, the promise, the guarantee that he gives us of a hope for the future. That is what it is to be a Christian. It is to have this gift of new life in Christ and it is to have the certainty of hope for the future. And all all of that is because of what God has done for us and in us in Christ. That is the foundation for the book of 1 Peter and that is what he is building on today. And in today's passage, Peter is laying two more bricks upon that foundation. He is telling us how a Christian community should stand together as a church. That is how we should look inwards, how we should look towards one another. Uh, And he is also encouraging us to look outwards, how that Christian community can present itself to the surrounding world. But at no point should we lose sight of that foundation. That being a Christian community is simply about being who God has made us to be. It's not about us making a transformation in ourselves. It's about what God has done in us. But at the same time, that doesn't get us off the hook. See, Peter's call here is to join with God in what he is doing in us. It's to partner with him in what he's doing. And the key to this passage is that we do not do that as individuals. We do it together as a church. Now that is critical because we cannot properly understand this passage if we try to read it as a collection of individuals. If you try to live as a faithful Christian the way Peter describes it by yourself, you will fail because Peter is describing what a Christian community should be. So let's take a look at what that is, how and why. How do we as a church live out that identity that we have in Christ? Well, there are two steps. As we've said, we first of all do it by looking inward, by looking at what it means for us to be the community of God's people. And secondly, we look outwards. We look at how, as that community, we can engage with God's world. Now, I imagine we could probably do 
with a little bit more detail than that. So let's dig in a bit. Let's start by looking inwards. What should a Christian community look like? Uh, Well, Peter gives us a whole bunch of things to think about straight away in verse 8. He writes there, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Now, Peter is an expert public speaker. He said, finally, there, when he's not even halfway through the letter. That is really quite smooth. Uh, But let's take a little bit of a closer look at what Peter actually says. So, first of all, be like-minded, Literally, be of the same mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to agree on absolutely everything. It doesn't mean that we have to be exactly the same, as though there were only one kind of personality that Christians are allowed to have. Uh, Now, none of us would admit to thinking that way, that thinking that we are the right kind of Christian and there are no alternatives, but most of us do get a little bit suspicious of people who say they're Christian, but do things differently from the way that we do. Peter's not saying be like-minded to give us an excuse for our prejudices. What he's saying is that as Christians, as believers, we should be unified in our purpose and our direction. And what he's saying is that this is the difference between being a bunch of people who have something in common and being a family that is unified in Christ. It's the difference between a club and a church. See, the question here is what we stand for as a community, what we are all about as a community. Most people who come here with uh, our various services through the course of a day would identify themselves as Christians. Not everybody uh, who comes along would call themselves a Christian, but many people who do come here would say that they are Christians. But the fact that we are all Christians does not in itself make us a community. See, if you were to go to the movies on a Sunday morning instead, you would be in a room with a bunch of people who had come to the same place at the same time with exactly the same purpose in mind. You would have something very specific in common, but you wouldn't be a community. We're not just people who have something in common. We're not just people who happen to be doing the same thing. We are meant to be a family. So what actually unites us? What unites us is who we are in Christ. You remember that first building block? Our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is in what God has done and is doing in us. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God together. And so be like-minded. Be God's people. We are God's people and we are about God's business. Church isn't a Sunday club to fill up our mornings. It's God's people together on mission. Be like-minded. Let's keep digging. Be sympathetic. What does it mean in this context to be sympathetic? Well, to be sympathetic here means to be forgiving of the differences that exist between us. We are not all the same. We know that we're not all the same. And often church communities tend to struggle simply because we are so different. Uh, Because church brings together a bunch of people uh, from different walks of life who would not perhaps normally uh, be friends if they had met in society at large. Sympathy here means assuming the best of everyone. When people do things differently to us, when people dress differently, 
when people act differently, use different language, even think differently on some issues, we can be very quick to write them off, to think of them as not being quite as good as we are. But if we're honest, most of the things which divide Christian communities are pretty petty and minor. The things that we complain about, the things that we get really worked up and angry about within our church communities, in the long run, tend to be fairly trivial. Being sympathetic means being tolerant and accepting of things that other people do that we find annoying. Now, we can't probably not notice them. You can't switch that off so that you don't even see those things anymore. But you can let go of the way that you respond to them. A good way to start might be when we're tempted to complain about someone from within our church family, to think instead of how we might thank God for what they bring to us. That's part of what it is to be sympathetic. That's part of what it is to love one another, which is where Peter goes next. So be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Now you've probably heard this before, that love, when the Bible talks about it in this way, is not talking about the emotional feeling. You can't command to generate an emotional feeling for someone. Love is determined by the way that we act towards one another. Now as I said, we know this, but knowing something and actually doing something about it are two very different things. Uh, Now I want you to imagine for a moment, that perhaps this morning uh, someone completely new had walked into our church community and they wanted to know what Christian love was. Now, we weren't going to tell them what we think Christian love is. We were going to show them by the way that we do church uh, church together. What would they think that Christian love was from watching us as a church community? Now, I think they would get glimpses of what it means to love one another. I think there would be certainly some things that they would see about the way that we meet together that do demonstrate genuine love. I think they would see people who help each other out when we're in need. They would see people cooking meals, cleaning houses for those who might be struggling for whatever reason. They might see people who pray for one another people who take an interest in each other's lives, who have a genuine concern uh, for the ups and downs of life. I think they would see a lot of good things about what love is. But I don't think that would be all they see. I think they might also see some of the superficial conversations that we have, the how's your week been type conversations, those times when we swap small talk, instead of actually engaging the person in front of us. And they might conclude that Christian love is about keeping up appearances. When we only ever speak to our small group of friends that we know really well, uh, they might think love is limited. When we're checking our watches to see how late it's getting and whether we should really be getting off to our next event or when they see us fail to meet with each other because we just didn't really feel like it this week, They might think, well, love is when it's convenient. But we're told to love one another. Not superficially, not keeping up appearances, not in a limited way, not when it's convenient, simply to love one another. 
It's very easy to say. It's very easy to claim. Oh, absolutely, Christians love one another. It's very hard to do. Because love by its nature is costly. Love by its nature is sacrificial. It means giving up our convenience. It means giving up our time, giving up our energy, giving up our effort, doing things that we wouldn't ordinarily do for no return. But it's not optional. It's what God's people do. That's what we're to be marked by. Jesus says that in John's Gospel. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Love one another. And we do that with compassion and humility. Now, humility means thinking less of ourselves and thinking more of other people. It means putting their needs ahead of our own. And that's a real challenge because that goes completely against our nature, which is to look after ourselves first and then as a secondary thing to show compassion for other people. And Jesus flips that on his head, in, on its head in his own life. Uh, and Peter will go exactly there in just a minute to look at Jesus and the way that he gave up his own rights for the sake of other people to use that as an example for us. When we live like this, he says, when we are like-minded, when we are sympathetic, when we genuinely love one another with compassion and humility, he says, then we are a Christian community. The way that we live together defines who we are as a Christian community, built on what God has already done in us. But that's only the first step. You see, we're to look inwards, we're to look at the kind of people that we are meant to be together, Peter says, but we're also to look outwards and to look at what our community can do together. Now, if you've been both here and paying attention for the last few weeks, you may have noticed some common themes popping up through that section of Peter. Don't worry, there's no test, uh, so it's not like kids' church. We're much harder on them, aren't we? Uh, But anyway, uh, we've been talking over the last few weeks about the kind of relationships that we find ourselves in, you may have noticed. We uh, spoke last week about husbands and wives. Uh, We spoke the week before looking at slaves and their masters, and we talked about the parallels that are there uh, with the workforce, with employees and employers. And we spoke before that about how we respond to the authorities which are placed over us, so governments and other kinds of authorities that we find ourselves under. Now, Each of us are under at least one, if not two or three, of those kind of relationships. And did you notice that in each one of them we were told to do exactly the same thing? I wonder if you remember what that was. We were told to submit to one another. In chapter 2, verse 13, we were told to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. In chapter 2, verse 18, slaves were told, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And in chapter 3, verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, I don't think that Peter had writer's block and couldn't think of a better word to use. I think that he's actually trying to make a point here, that we submit ourselves to each other. And because in each of those cases, he's not even talking to about other Christians. He's saying, submit yourselves to those who are not Christians. He's saying, this is how you as the church engage with the wider world around you. And why do we do that? 
why should we want to submit ourselves to a wider world uh, which is not one that shares our faith? And he tells us here, he says, we submit ourselves to others, uh, which is, in summary, talking about all those things that we've been speaking of over the last few weeks and today. Uh, we live like the people of God, like a genuine community. We are like-minded. We are sympathetic towards one another. We love one another. We are compassionate and humble, not just so that we can be the best Christians we can be, or even so that we can just be the best community that we can be, but because of the impact that we can have on those around us. Now, those three examples, those relationships that Peter describes, uh, that he categorizes by submission, I don't know if you noticed, but he actually bounds those with two statements about how the way we live impacts the world we live in. So before the first of those, before uh, he spoke of submitting ourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority, in 2 verse 12, he tells Christians to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We live good lives so that others may come to glorify God, that they may come to see the glory of God through us. That's how he began and he finishes here in exactly the same way. In 3 verse 15, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Right? Bookends, beginning and end. Here's how you live as Christians. Here's what it looks like to be the church. Here's how you should react to the world around you so that others may come to know Christ's glory just as you have. As God's people, we live as God's people so that they may see his glory, his grace and be saved because the world is watching the way we act all the time. If you've ever spent some time in the secular world, if you've ever looked at the way that people speak about the church, you would see the way that that works out and you would sadly see the impression that many people have of Christians, which is not what we read here. You see, when many people look at the church, when they look at the way we speak, when they look at the causes that we seem to care the most about, and when they see how we interact on those issues, many people don't see a lot of gentleness and compassion. They don't see a lot of respect for others. They don't see much grace or selflessness in the way that we live. Now, it is true that sometimes people are quite unjust in the way that they criticise the church. It is true that sometimes there are innocent victims in that Christians may get particularly targeted, uh, though as often as not, it's simply our sense of pride uh, which has been damaged as much as anything. But, you know, Peter actually anticipates that as well. Peter doesn't say, oh, look, if you do the right thing, everything will go well for you. And he says, no, you know what? If, verse 14, if you get persecuted for doing the right thing, well, so be it. You just have to do the right thing. That can't be helped and you'll be blessed. So don't be afraid to suffer for doing what we're meant to do. But at the same time, the way that we conduct ourselves matters. Now, I've lost count of how many outraged Christian responses that I have seen on particular, uh, particular issues and even how many aggressive, attacking Christian responses that I have seen on those issues. I've lost count of how many jokes I've heard being told uh, at the expense of one people group in our society or another. Uh, followers of Islam, 
people who identify as same-sex attracted or as transgender are probably the biggest targets that Christians can't seem to help getting stuck into, either to attack their worldview or to make fun of them as being laughable. We give an answer for our hope, he says in verse 15, but if we can't give an answer for our hope with gentleness and respect, then it's better that we keep our mouths shut. Now, our temptation at this point might be to say that we were just defending ourselves. It might be to say that people are hard on Christians too. People make fun of us. We're just responding to things that other people have said. But again, if it's not done with gentleness and respect, with love and compassion, then we are not being the people that Christ calls us to be. And ultimately, he is our example, not others. At least that's where Peter goes next in verse 18. See, if we feel attacked, if we feel that the world is set against us and we feel that our best course of action is to attack back, well, Jesus gives us an alternative. Now, he introduces it in verse 17. He says there, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than it is for doing evil. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus dealt with that kind of opposition. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He suffered too. He suffered first. He died. But being the victim of persecution wasn't defeat for him. It was the beginning of a process that saw not only Jesus rise from the dead, but a promise that we would too. And it didn't end there. Jesus rose, Peter says. Jesus is now seated in heaven, he says, reigning above all things from verse 21. He says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers in submission to you. So if it feels hard to be a Christian, if you feel outnumbered, if you feel as though your faith is under siege in the media, if you feel like you've been unfairly targeted, well, so was Jesus. And this is how he responded. And look at where he is now. With grace, with love, with compassion, with gentleness. And he was victorious. And where is he now? He is seated in heaven at God's right hand, at the right hand of power. So if you struggle to believe the promises that he has made us, well, there they are. He is in a place where he can do something about them. Now, yes, the middle verses in that section are quite tricky. Verses 19 and 20, uh, if you've ever read those and struggled with them, you are not alone. Uh, And uh, there are a thousand different theories on what those verses might mean. Uh, It's behind the theory that Jesus descended to the dead when he... uh, after he died on the cross, it's uh, other people think that it's talking about Jesus preaching in the Old Testament somehow. Other people think that he's even gone to preach to those who've already died somehow in the three days between the cross and the resurrection. There are any number of theories that you can read on that. It's hard to be precise, but if we spend all our time arguing what verses 19 and 20 mean, then we're going to miss the point entirely, uh, both of that section, but of Peter as a whole. Because the point of the passage is that just as Jesus went to the cross, just as Jesus suffered and died innocently, God rose him and now he reigns on high forever. Just as God did that with his son, so he will do with his people as well. And so what should we do knowing that this is how our God calls us to be, knowing that this is the pattern our God has set for us himself? 
We are to be like-minded, to be sympathetic, to love one another, to be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So when we engage with a hostile world, that's who we are to be. When our faith is attacked, that's who we are to be. When we're afraid at the cost of evangelism, whether it's the social cost or how people may respond, that's who we are to be. When we don't feel like it, when we want to be selfish or consumed in our own busyness, that's who we are to be. Like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate and humble. We don't do terribly. But in God's grace and with his strength, I think we could do better. So what might we do this week? How might God use you as part of his family to reach others? Well, perhaps the first step is to ask him. Why don't we start there? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace towards us. We do thank you that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are generous and compassionate, and that you are humble, that you put aside your own interests to come into our world to live for us and to die for us and to rise for new life, that we may know you. And we thank you that it is you who has done everything, that you have given us this new birth into a living hope, that you are shaping us to be like your son, that you are bringing us together as a community of your people, that you have given us this identity both now and forever. Lord, we pray that you will help us together as your people here to live for you, to be like-minded, to be sympathetic to one another, to show our love for each other, to be compassionate and humble, both so that you might strengthen us as a church, but also so that through us, others may see your glory and come to know your love and your forgiveness as well. And so, Lord, we pray that you will grow us as a church, uh, but more importantly, in your world, uh, as we look forward to that eternal hope in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Father, in his name. Amen.